let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to guide us as we study. Lord, thank you so much for today and thank you for your many blessings to us. Lord, I just pray and plead with you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, speak to each of our hearts and open our minds to the truths of Scripture. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And we thank you. Amen. Okay. So, I was asked to cover the second coming and the judgment. So, those are some big topics. I have a lot of Bible texts. So, it wouldn't be ill-advised to take out a pen and a paper and take some notes because we'll probably go pretty quickly through these Bible texts. There's Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter four. Sorry. Starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you, what? By a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Here, the Apostle Paul says to the early Christian church in Thessalonica, friends, brothers, don't be ignorant about the coming of the Lord. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, he's also going to raise the dead. Amen. Not only that, the Lord is coming back and descending from heaven with a shout, with the voice 
of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And he says, we declare this to you by a word from the Lord. This is not a promise that has an origin with man. This wasn't something that the Apostle Paul was promising the early Christian church. This wasn't something that Peter was promising the early church, or Matthew, or John, or Bartholomew. This wasn't an idle promise. This was a promise that came by the word of the Lord. So today, we're going to take a look at the word of the Lord, and we're going to find his promises of his coming back soon. Turn with me to John chapter 14. We'll start with this promise. John chapter 14. Many of you have probably memorized this text. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you would have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Here, Jesus makes a promise to his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them in heaven, in his father's house. And if it weren't so, he wouldn't have told them. But he had promised that there was a place for them and that he would come back and fetch them, even though they may have died. He was coming back to fetch every single one of his followers. He was going to prepare a place for them. They couldn't follow him there, but that's all right, because he'd come back to get them, and he was going to show them the way. In fact, he declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, I can just imagine the early Christian believers. You know, Jesus has ascended to heaven. And they're like, okay. He said he was going to prepare a place for us and that we wouldn't be able to follow him. But I know he's going to come back for me. And so... Saul starts unleashing his madness on the early Christian church and starts carrying out the fury of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders. And he starts disbanding the early Christian church and carrying them captive. And then Herod kills James. 
And the disciples look at each other and they're one disciple short. They're like, we know that he promised us he was going to prepare a place for us. And where he went, we wouldn't be able to follow. But he would be coming back for us. And, you know, James is dead now. But he's going to have to raise James because he promised to James, I'm coming back for you. And they're like, so we're just going to have to keep pressing forward. And then Saul goes out and he arrests a whole house full of believers. And they're like, oh no, what do we do? But you know what? Christ is going to come back and he's going to make all this right. He's coming back for me. He's gone to prepare a place for me. And so it went through the years as persecution followed persecution. Finally, we get down to the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's gone. And the believers that are still around, they're like, listen, children. Listen, Jesus told me he went to prepare a place for us and that he was going to be coming back. And he has a place for you and a place for me. Never forget it. And so while Nero carried out the worst of the worst against the early Christian church, the believers repeated the promise. He hasn't left us alone. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And where I go, you cannot follow. But I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and take you to be with me, that where I am, there you may be also. And so we have this promise that has become the blessed hope. That hope that Jesus is coming back again. He promised it. Oh, such an amazing promise. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, this was all the disciples and Jesus after his, after his resurrection. Jesus said unto, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Here he left a promise he was going to come back. And now his disciples are also told he's going to come back the same way he was taken, in a cloud. In fact, Jesus himself said it, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, Uh, actually, it'll start in 27. So here in Matthew 24, Christ warns about false Christ and false prophets, if I remember correctly, about eight times. He repeats the warning over and over. If you hear people say, here's the Christ, or there is the Christ, don't, don't go. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. And he's like, listen, when I come again, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He's like, when, when I come back, it's going to be visible everywhere, east to west. Every eye shall see him, Revelation 1, verse 8. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other, immediately after the tribulation of those days, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. He will come in the clouds of heaven in that same manner that he was taken up into heaven, in the clouds. He'd be coming back with the clouds. But this time, Everyone's going to see him. You won't miss this event. Lightning. When there's lightning, do you notice it? When there's lightning outside your window. Even if it's dark. Especially when it's dark. Even when you're not looking at the window. Do you know there's lightning? It brightens up the whole room. And you can then hear the thunder afterwards. And we read in 1 Thessalonians 4 that when he comes, he's going to come with a trumpet and with the voice of an archangel. It's going to be visible. It's going to be audible. Everyone's going to know. <laughs> there won't be any missing of this event. Let's keep reading in, verse, in chapter 24. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near, even 
at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's why the Apostle Paul could say with such firmness, we speak these things unto you by the word of the Lord. Turns out, heaven and earth can pass away, but the words of God never do. I just love this. The Bible is so amazing. And so the lesson of the fig tree is given here in Matthew chapter 24. He said, when the leaves come on, you know summer's near. So also when you shall see all these things, you know that it is near at the very gates. All what things? Everything that he had just been talking about in Matthew chapter 24. Turn back to Matthew 23, last verses of that chapter, starting in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's Jesus. He's sitting on a fool. And he's riding into Jerusalem. And he comes to the crest of the hill, overlooking Jerusalem. And he sees the temple. And it's glittering and sparkling in the sunlight. And in that temple are priests and rulers who had come face to face with the Messiah but had not recognized it. Meaningless forms, ceremonies, rituals were going to be carried out there for time to come until the Romans came and destroyed it. And he saw that destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in his mind's eye. And all the people that would die, an estimated 1.1 million people died in the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. Jesus sees these people dying, and he sees what might have been if they had simply accepted their Messiah. He sees how history could have taken an entirely different course. How these people might not have to experience the pain and the heartbreak that was going to be coming upon them so shortly. And then he pronounces those words, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here he speaks of his second coming, when he would come back. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, they're like, hey, look at that. He was very aware of it. And he answered them, you will see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another, 
that will not be thrown down. And the disciples came to him when they got to the Mount of Olives and said, tell us, when will all these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see, for the disciples, they couldn't distinguish in their minds a difference between the end of the world and the end of the temple. <laughs> to them, <laughs> it was the same thing. <laughs> when, when the temple was gone, <laughs> their world was gone, at least the world as they knew it. And they figured that must be, you know, the, the end of all things, that, you know, the temple's going to last forever, right? And Jesus takes this moment as a teachable moment. And so he tells them about what he had just foretold, which was his coming. What they had asked him about, the second coming. And what they were really asking about, which was the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And so he wraps up both those events into Matthew chapter 24. And he gives signs and symbols foretelling both. He warns about false religious teachers. He warns that the nations would be angry. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So here we see that when Jesus is going to come again, there's even going to be a false pretense of peace and security. Matthew chapter 24, hopefully you kept your hand there. Matthew 24, verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Did you know that today almost 150,000 people are going to die from starvation today alone? We couldn't be living closer to this time that Jesus speaks of. Famine, earthquakes in various places. There's a 7.2 in Mexico just a few weeks ago. And the number of earthquakes is on a hockey stick curve. I don't know how many of you are familiar with a hockey stick curve, but it's, one, it's, it's where you have earthquakes doing this, and then all of a sudden, shoo, they do that. that. That's referred to as a hockey stick curve or an exponential curve. And if you look at all these natural disasters and events, we're seeing 100-year floods every decade now. We're seeing 1,000-year cataclysmic events happening on sometimes yearly or decade basis. You're seeing events that shouldn't be happening 
happening so much faster, so much more frequently. Yes. Yes. When, you, when a woman goes into labor, there's a few contractions, then more and more and more and more, and then just this uh, positive feedback cycle until the baby is born. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That's right. More frequent, more mm -hmm. intense. Where each of those, each of those contractions then gives feedback to cause a much stronger contraction and, and so on and so forth, that positive feedback. Yeah. Um, Luke chapter 21. Actually, Luke 21 is one of my favorite accounts of this discussion between Jesus and his disciples. It's recorded in two different places. where Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. Matthew 24 and Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. You'll see here that there's going to be a real temptation right before Jesus comes back to be overburdened with the cares of this world to be burdened with cares so much that many people turn to dissipation and drunkenness to try to get their minds off of the stressful time in which they're living and their life circumstances. Where people turn to substances to drown out the cacophony of voices saying, you're not good enough. Your situation is hopeless. Your circumstances are, are awful. And Jesus says, watch yourselves. Don't, don't fall into that trap. It's going to be rough. But stay awake and pray that you'll have strength to go through it. I also like verse 25 through 28. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in what? A cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. Because what? 
your redemption is drawing near. Amen. Praise the Lord. Such good news. Turns out that Jesus is coming back. And when we see everything going downhill, when we're encompassed by difficulties, afflictions, trials, seems like the world's falling apart at the seams, that's when we're supposed to take courage and hope and strength because we know his coming draws nigh. I just love it. It's like at the time of earth's deepest and darkest distress, the light and glory of Jesus will be shined most brightly. It's, it's you know, it, it couldn't get any worse. And then all of a sudden, for the redeemed, it can't get any better. I just love this. God is so good. So good. I was also supposed to speak on the judgment this morning. We'll see what I can do in five minutes. How's that? So, there is one thing, though, that we find with this coming of Christ that throws a wrench in things. You see, when Jesus comes, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. So in Matthew chapter 24, Christ talks about the end of the world and his second coming and the destruction of Jerusalem. And then in Matthew 25, he starts telling stories. And his stories are actually illustrations about the events and time periods leading up to his second coming. So you have the parable of the five foolish and five wise virgins who have lambs. Then he tells a parable about talents and a man who went on a journey. And then he comes back at the end of his journey and some of his servants have multiplied the talents and so one of his servants hasn't. And nobody knew when he was coming back. Then he speaks of the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, 
you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In other words, he's been preparing those mansions and rooms in his Father's house from the very beginning for us. Come inherit the kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me food. Then he will say to those on the left, verse 41, depart from me, you cursed. So here he's making a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous when he comes back. In the Bible, you find Christ's second coming referred to over and over and over and over again as the day of the Lord. So, for, one, for example, one of those Isaiah chapter 34, verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Oh, there's so many good, good verses. Oh. There's a lot of talk throughout all of Scripture about judgment, about Christ being a righteous judge and sitting in judgment for his people. So many, so many. In, in fact, when he, when he gave the Levitical and Mosaic Jewish system, he told them very specifically, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And the reason he wanted them to be righteous in their judgment was because he is righteous in his judgment. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So Christ promised he'd come back. But in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, he says something else about coming back. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Here, Christ says, I'm coming back, but I'm coming back, and I like what the King James says, my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. Christ is coming back to bring a reward that reward has already been determined. 
So here we see two phases to Christ's judgment. There's a phase where he determines the reward, and there's a phase where he delivers the reward. Do you see that? There's a phase where he determines what the reward will be, and then he brings it back with him when he comes back. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Here Jesus talks about the judgment, but he says on the judgment day. And it would make sense being that he has to make his investigation about someone's reward after the works upon which he's making that judgment, right? So he speaks about it in a future tense. But at the same time, we know that judgment's before he comes back. So he spoke of a future judgment sometime before he would return. Oh, so much. There's also a scene in the book of Revelation. This is the wrong context, but the point stands where there's a throne and Christ sits on it in judgment. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So here we see that Again, judgments related to works. And when we read in Matthew chapter 25, I actually skipped part of the story. Because when he divides the individuals on the right hand and on the left, you'll notice he divides them based on whether or not they cared for the poor, visited those in sick, who were sick and in prison, whether or not people helped, those, helped their neighbors, their friends, their enemies. And he says that each time they did that, they were doing it as unto him. I think in the judgment, it's not just about not doing evil. It's also about doing good. But the only way that we can make it through the judgment is also through the one who's coming to bring the reward. You remember back to the second verse we went to, John 14, where Jesus says, I come back and 
you know, and if I go, you know, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'll come back and bring you to be with me where I am. And then he says, you cannot follow me, but you know the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 17, verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know me, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. What's life eternal? Knowing Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to make it through the judgment, into heaven, to be able to rejoice, at the second coming, when all the nations of the earth mourn, is to know him, the only true God, the way, the truth, and the life. Psalm 7, 8, verse 8, the Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Righteousness only comes from the Lord. And it's his gift. And here the psalmist pleads for the Lord to judge him by the righteousness the Lord has given him, not by, in Psalm 51, he says, not by my iniquities. And so it is that we ask the Lord to judge us by the righteousness he gives us. Ah, there's so much more to explore with the judgment. Isaiah has some beautiful passages, but we'll, we'll close with Psalm 9. Verses 7 through 10, our scripture reading for today. Psalm chapter 9, starting in verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness, and he judges the peoples with uprightness. Nothing can sway his judgment. The only way we make it through is with Christ's righteousness. And when he sits in judgment, he makes everything right. In Revelation chapter 2, 9, 10, or 11, I can't remember off the top of my head. There's a word picture given of souls crying under the altar, how long, how long, Lord, until you make right the injustice that was done to us? There, it speaks of them as, as martyrs for the truth. And then it gives the answer later on in, in the following chapters, how long 
And, and the judgment is really a message of hope. Because it's a promise that not everything's going to go right, justly, fairly, or well in this life. But we have a righteous judge who will make all things right. It's never right for a parent to have to bury their child. It's never right when evil prospers and unjust men live lives of luxury while the people who are employed or enslaved by them can barely put food on their table or clothes on their backs. It's not right. It's not right when young people's lives are cut short in the prime of their life due to a senseless accident or a deadly disease. It's not right when, when anything dies. It's not right. But we have a judge who has promised to set all things right. And that is such a message of hope. We have a righteous judge who will set the record straight and right every wrong. God is so good. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. That is the promise. Knowing him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Knowing him who is life eternal. Knowing him causes us to trust him. To know him is to love him. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we come before you seeking you. Lord, we, want to, we can't wait to see you again. We want to be reunited with you. We see the signs all around us. Your coming is very soon. Lord, help us to watch, to wait, to be ready, to always be prepared, not attached to the things of this world, not consumed with the cares of this life, but trusting in you, knowing that you're going to bring us through, the, through today's situations. You're going to set the record straight. And you'll impart to us and impute to us your righteousness. Lord, thank you so much for we deserve none of this. And you deserve all of the glory, the credit, the honor, and the praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Maranatha.